0: Stories from revitalization. Hi everyone, and thank you for listening to NEPWANDINGE Stories from Miami Revitalization. For those of you who don't know, NEPWANDINGE means learning from each other in the Miami language. And this is a phrase that's used to describe the relationship between the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and Miami University. And in this podcast, we'll talk about how the tribe and the university learn from each other, and how that has impacted the revitalization process for Miami people. Nila Hi, everyone. My name is Kara Strauss and I am a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. And I am joined here today with a couple of my colleagues.
1: Aya Pequatawawensuane, Nila Miamiqia. Hi,
2: I'm Christina Fox, and I'm a citizen of the Miami Tribe. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is George Ironstrack, and I'm a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma as well. And um, as we mentioned, all three of us are, are citizens of the same tribe, of the Miami Tribe. We call ourselves Miami or the downstream people in our language. We're a small tribal nation of just over 5,700 people. Um, We're we're headquartered in what is today Northeast Oklahoma, Um, but our community's original homelands include what is today the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, as well as parts of Wisconsin and Michigan. Today, our, our citizens can be found living in diaspora from our nation in about 49 states within the United States, as well as outside the boundaries of this country.
0: Additionally, all three of us are graduates of Miami University. Um, George and I graduated with our master's degrees, and Tina came here for undergrad and is also working on a master's degree. Miami University is a mid-sized public university, which is located in our people's traditional homelands in what is today Southeast Ohio, in the town of Oxford. As
1: Kara mentioned, we're all colleagues, and we work at the Miami Center, which is an initiative of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma to serve the needs of the Miami people, Miami University, and partner communities through research, education, and outreach that promote Miami language, culture, knowledge, and values. As part of our work, we often do presentations where we present about the Miami Tribe and our relationship with Miami University. And we're recording in our offices or at home uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic, but it also challenged us to figure out a new way to share this information with you. So Nei is really a product of our work at the Miami Center and trying to adapt to our new working conditions.
2: Yeah. And you know, when, when we stop and think about this relationship between our tribe, the Mime tribe of Oklahoma and Mime University, you know, it's, a, it's a unique relationship. Um, we're we're you know, honored to be able to speak about it publicly a lot. And one of the events I think that for me anyway is like the most seminal or epitomizing event in this history so far um, is uh, Daryl Baldwin, our, our director's 2017 commencement address when he spoke to the entire graduating class at Miami University.
1: Uh, So, Daryl Baldwin is a citizen of the Miami tribe. He is also the director of the Miami Center, and he's been working at uh, Miami University's Oxford campus since 2001, and he did a lot of work um, in revitalizing Miami language. Uh, He started with his family at home, and it grew into work for the community and others. Um, And in 2016, he was recognized along with all of his colleagues in our community for our language revitalization work with a MacArthur Fellowship. It's also known as a Genius Grant. Um, So that's part of the reason why he was invited to speak at the 2017 commencement for Miami University. So if if you can picture giant football field, crowds of people in the stands, on the field, um, Daryl's up at the podium, addressing all Miami University graduates for 2017. And in that audience, we also have Miami's tribes, Miami's students um, who are attending and graduating from Miami University. So we have a short excerpt from his commencement address.
3: The effects of this relationship go beyond just tribal students. Every one of you graduating here today are connected to this effort. Whether you realize it or not, you all are part of something greater than yourselves. Miami University, your alma mater, which bears our tribal name, has demonstrated respect to the Miamia people through 45 years of collaboration and relationship building. The Miami Tribe and Miami University now share a seat together around the fire burning in our historic homelands of Miami Ongi. At the core of our tribal revitalization efforts are kinship and community. All of you here experience kinship bonding and community, whether from a hometown or family environment or during your time here at Miami. Think about all that's happened during your time here. The many friendships you created, the struggles and challenges of learning that expanded your minds, and even a few Miami mergers. That is what happens in the context of a vibrant community of engaged learners.
1: So at the time of this commencement address, there were 32 Miami students enrolled and six of them were graduating that day. And as a whole, we had 64 MiamiA students graduating from Miami University. So this, this relationship has had a big impact not only on um, the Miami University community, but on the Miami community as well. So Makunzikwa, Kara, where did this relationship come from? How did it begin?
0: Yeah, so it's important to point out that while we told you that Miami University is located within Miami traditional homelands, that the tribe was headquartered in Oklahoma, and this is because of two forced removals. So the relationship didn't begin until 1972, um, when the chief of the tribe at that time, Chief Forrest Olds comes to Miami University. His visit was unexpected, um, and he just happened to be in Cincinnati for a conference related to bringing um, better electrical um, utilities to our, our corner of Northeast Oklahoma. But his visit to Miami University was also a visit to his people's traditional homelands and I think that that was an important part of his wanting to make this connection to a university that shared a name with his tribal people. So I always like to imagine what it was like for Forrest Olds to arrive at the president's office at Miami University um, and introduce himself as the chief of the Miami tribe. Um, but President Shriver happened to just not be there that day. Um, and I don't think they were quite. Sure, what to do with him, and so several other people would take him uh on a tour of campus as
2: well as to a football game Kinde, Kinde, Kinde. so let's let's back up here for a minute. so you're telling you're telling us that the chief of the Miami Tribal Oklahoma basically cold called the president of Miami university's office and and unsurprisingly they had they had no idea what to do with him at first, yeah, I
0: think that uh. I, you know i just imagine what it was like for i'm sure some administrative assistant sitting at a desk <laughs> and the seemingly important person <laughs> who who uh, you know belongs to the tribe that shares a name with your university <laughs> introduces Themselves and then you have to go find somebody,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. to,
0: <laughs> who's important enough to uh, engage right. with him. So I'm I'm sure that was uh, entertaining to say the least. At least for the beginning yeah. of, of that uh, meeting.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's um, it's kind of funny because if, if President Shriver had actually been there. It might have been less awkward because his area of speciality is Ohio history, and he would have actually known about the Miami tribe and been able to have a reasonably um, familiar conversation with Forrest, but that's not, that's not how it worked out for that poor admin that day.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, just knowing what it's like even today to introduce yourself as the a citizen of a tribal nation and the blank look that usually comes across a person's face, I can uh-huh. imagine that it was only even more intense in 1972, especially when there was at that time zero relationship between the tribe and the university. What became clear very early on was that they were very interested in learning what he had to say about Miami's mascot, which at that time was the Redskins. This was something that was already being thought of, um, whether they should change this mascot prior to Chief Old's visit, And later that very same year, in 1972, Miami University sends a resolution to the Miami tribe asking them to endorse the use of the Redskins mascot. It's voted on by the the tribe at annual meeting, and they vote to agree to that endorsement of, of the mascot. Chief Olds returns to Miami University about two years later in 1974, and it's at that time that he meets with President Schreiber, which really kicks off the building of relationships between the Miami tribe and Miami University, especially relationships between individual people. But Chief Olds dies not long after. For that second visit in 1974. And a new chief, Chief Floyd Leonard, is elected in his place.
1: So you mentioned two forced removals and that's why Chief Olds was traveling from Oklahoma back to traditional homelands in Ohio. Um, May Mashikia, could you fill us in what happened prior to 1972
2: with the tribe? <laughs> So it's, a, it's a really important for us to think about um, the history that Chief Forest Holds is bringing with him when he comes back to his homelands, because a lot has happened for, for his people in between the time of our uh, first forced removal in 1846 and his visit in, in 1972 to Oxford, Ohio. And we'll go into a lot more detail with this history in, in the next episode, um, but the, the shorthand is that After a series of treaties in the late 1700s and 1800s, the um, Miami tribe is basically forced to cede almost all of our traditional homelands. And then we're forcibly relocated in 1846 to what becomes Kansas, um, with about 150 people remaining behind within the state of Indiana. So we have population fragmentation as well as loss of land base. Um, And then a second removal occurs after the U.S. Civil War um, and the, the land base in Kansas is also lost. Um, by the 1890s, um, the Miami Reservation, uh, the Miami Peoria Reservation in Northeast Oklahoma or at that time Indian territory is also divided up into individual parcels in a process called allotment. And that process in the 1890s leaves the Miami Nation as a whole nearly, nearly landless. Um, so there's a lot of really um, destructive loss that our community experienced in between uh, ha- between 1846 and the 1890s. Um, and uh, there's a real, um, real hopeless period of tribal history, I think is how a lot of our elders described it in the early 20th century, passing through the Great Depression and um, a lot of struggle. Um, but the seeds of recovery, economic and political and even cultural recovery, are actually planted during the Great Depression as our nation reorganized under the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act or the Thomas Rogers Act and created a new constitution um, and formed an executive leadership body that we still have today called the Business Committee, um, which consists of uh, an Akema, our chief, Nijonaminge Akema, a second chief, uh, Achimwa, a secondary, secondary treasurer, and two Achimwake, uh two council persons. And it's under the leadership of, of the Business Committee that the Miami tribe begins to very slowly at first, uh, rebuild a land base um, and, and um, begin to reacquire economic independence, um, which I will explore in greater detail in the next episode, how that assists cultural revitalization. Um, but in terms of land, the tribe first, uh, together with other tribes that are in Miami, Oklahoma, um, received land on a 48, about a 40 acre parcel in Miami um, called the Eight Tribes Trail Complex um, and they, they acquired that land in 1971, 72. And this allowed them to start to eventually build um, structures to meet in, as well as uh, provide things like lunches for elders um, and other kinds of services. And then um, in addition to that, um, it, the Miller Moore family, um, who descend from one of the original allottees, uh, donated original allotment back, land back to the tribe. So their donation um, returned part of the reservation to the Mi- the Miami Nation, um, to the Miami Drive, of Oklahoma, and um, you know both of those uh, land acquisitions were really important to establishing a, a new foundation upon which our tribal nation could begin to rebuild.
1: So, as you said, the leadership is really elected by the the Miami community, and Ma Kunsigwa mentioned that. Um, in 1974, a new chief is elected. So um, how, does, how does the relationship change
0: with a change in leadership? Yeah, Chief Leonard is elected in 1974, and he continues on this relationship that was started by Chief Olds a few years earlier by coming to Miami University often and meeting with many individual people, especially President Shriver both President Shriver and Chief Leonard were educators. President Shriver's education focus as a faculty member was on Ohio history. Um, So he understood much of um, the Miami tribe's history and how they were originally um, part of the landscape here in Ohio. And Chief Leonard had served as a teacher, a principal, and an assistant superintendent in the Joplin and Webb City school districts and so these men really bonded over this love for education um, and so as Chief Leonard continues to come to campus and the relationship continues to strengthen, the focus turns to education and Chief Leonard is very interested in making sure that the Miami University student population learns about the Miami tribe as a contemporary Native American tribe. But he's also interested in bringing education to our Miami community as well. And so the education for Miami University students happens in a variety of ways. A lot of this, again, is focused around the mascot. So, there was dance training for Chief Miami, who was um, a dancer who dressed up in Indian regalia and danced at athletic events. Um, But additionally, there was educational programming that would happen here on campus. The push to have Miami students educated at Miami University in part came from a tribal member, Travis Hall, who wrote a letter asking Chief Floyd Leonard if there could be. Educational opportunities for Miami students at Miami University. He had heard about the relationship that was forming, and thought that it would be a great opportunity for Miami students to be able to come to Miami University. And this is part of what um, leads to the creation of the Miami Heritage Award, which would allow students to come to Miami University and receive a tuition waiver. Um, And this education throughout the 19. 80s, begins to move away from just the mascot towards the entire campus, um, and then continues to um, become more focused on the Mianya community. When Murtis Powell becomes the vice president for student affairs in 1989, she had always had a focus on diversity at Miami. Um, She had held several positions at Miami before becoming the VP for Student Affairs. And she creates a strong relationship with Chief Leonard um, and is also very interested in educating the Miami University student population, but also agrees that we should be educating Nyamia students as well. And so she visits Miami, Oklahoma in June of 1991. And she comes back with a charge from the tribe to educate Miami students, to educate Miami University students, and to create a physical space where that education can occur. And so, what happens is, in that very same year, in 1991, the first Miami students come to Miami University under the Miami Heritage Award, um, which is a financial waiver for Miami students. There were two undergrad students and one graduate students that year. But in 1991 and continuing through much of the 1990s, there was this financial award for Miami students, but there was really not much formal programming available to these students, and they would only get together occasionally for important events where the tribe and the university were getting together. In talking with these students who were here in the 1990s, they also said that they were often asked to speak on behalf of the tribe or on behalf of Native American students. And it seemed to be a little bit conspicuous almost that that they were one of very few Native American students on campus. And, you know, one of our very first students leaves after her first year, Um, she was very homesick. Um, And this is fairly common throughout the 1990s that students were enticed to come to Miami University as part of the Heritage Award program, Um, but there wasn't much here for them. And so our graduation rates at that time were um, only in the 40 and 50%. So
1: we've been talking about... um... A change in leadership on the the tribe's side, as well as a shift in focus in the relationship between the tribe and the university, um, and a call for education of the university community as well as um, tribal community. So, what else is happening on uh, the tribe's side that kind of led up to those those changes?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that's a that's a really important question to ask. And you know, I think we're starting to head towards, we're all uh, on the younger side in our tribal communities. So we're starting to head towards history that we lived through, experiences that we lived through. And you know, one, one comment that a lot of elders made to us in the, in the period of doing interviews in the, in the 1990s, and early 2000s was that in the middle of the 20th century, they weren't always sure the Miami tribe was gonna survive. They were worried about simply surviving. Um, but by the 1980s, the tribe is a lot is, is more stable by comparison to the, the middle of the 20th century. And there's really important steps of growth that are happening within the tribe, um, especially as we look back today. We can see these, these really important little, little sprouting seedlings um, that contribute to the growth of the tribe's uh, political um, side, its economic side, and then also its our, our cultural side. Um, one of the one of the first changes is that in 1995 the Miami Tribe we reform our constitution, which was as I said earlier written in 1939. And one of the major changes in that 1995 revision was to uh, build a bridge to bring back into the nation those people who were forced to leave in the in the forced removals. And um, this was an important action of sort of recognizing. Um, Harm done to us by the United States government, and that we had the power to to heal parts of ourselves, including the division of tribal citizens. And so, after that revision, our population began to grow um, faster than it had before. And so, the numbers of people who could join, um, you know, link arms together and work on various things within our tribe then also grew as a result. In the in the same period of time, where we're no longer simply you know scratching for survival. there are many different tribal members who, who start to feel a need to uh, reclaim aspects of our cultural identity, and especially our linguistic identity, um, our language, or And um, one, of the, one of the key people to, to ask questions like what happened to our language was uh, Daryl Baldwin, who we already mentioned, um, who began to, to try and you know, learn to speak the language um, from documentation and teach it within his family. Um, you know, he only had documents to turn to because there were no, by the 1990s, there were no living speakers of our language and there were no significant audio recordings. Um, so the, the language is only being used in the community in memorized form uh, for, for a little bit of prayer and traditional names. Um, so it was extremely limited, even in memorized use, and people, our community's understanding of the language um, was, as you would imagine, extremely limited. So Daryl doing this, beginning to pick up the language from documents and, and speak it to his children in a communicative fashion, um, was a really powerful moment for the community to hear it being used in that way again. And not just a memorized form, and Daryl very quickly got called on to teach community programs to begin to teach other people to speak what he had learned, um, and so this this led to you know increasing spread of interest um, in language and through that in cultural revitalization, um, as lots of other aspects of the Miami Tribe um, continued to stabilize in this period. Um, in the In the latter 1990s, The Miami tribe actually applied for a grant um, from the administration for Native Americans, um, which sits within uh, health and human services in the US government. Um, And the the tribal librarian at the time, who wasn't a tribal member, but did great work building up the Miami tribes library in Miami, Oklahoma, her name is Karen Alexander. Um, She she applied for this grant um, to um, begin the process of trying to build up the number of language teachers in the community, so it was really ambitious. Um, and then she also drew in uh, Julie Olds, um, who is going to be really important in multiple stages of this story. And Julie um, is not herself directly related to Forrest Olds, um, but her husband um, is kin with Forrest Olds. Um, and she was um, elected eventually to the business committee in September of 1996 as secretary treasurer. And she came on to this grant that was uh, uh, received from the ANA, from the Administration for Native Americans, in 1997. And uh, she came on as a language clerk, so she was supposed to manage sort of the the activities of the grant and the data produced. And Karen told her that she needed to get in touch with two people, and those two people were Daryl Baldwin, who we already introduced you to, um, who was living in in Montana at the time. He wouldn't graduate from uh, his program there until 1999. And the second person um, was uh, David Costa. Um, who's also not uh, born to our community, um, but has come sort of into our community over time through hard work and, and sacrifice and great effort. Um, Dr. Costa um, was a graduate student, or he had just in 1990, um, 1996, he had just graduated two years earlier from UC Berkeley, um, getting his degree in linguistics and his dissertation focused on our language, what linguists call the Miami-Illinois language and what we call um, this this grant that Julie pulled David Costa and Daryl Baldwin into working on was was really ambitious the goal was to very quickly in just a couple of years train multiple teachers of miami Miao To wenge and then to better disseminate the language in the community through these teachers and um, the grant produced a lot of positive outcomes. Um, I, I was in and around some of those efforts and it was really exciting, um, but was unsuccessful in directly producing teachers because what we came to learn as a community is there's a lot more work we needed to do when revitalizing a language from documentation um, than we first thought. And um, producing teachers was gonna take take a lot more work and it's going to take resources that um, the Miami tribe itself at that time did not have um, in terms of human resources and in terms of uh, academic research resources.
1: So a lot of work is done to educate the community on the tribe side and a focus, uh, an education focus is happening at Miami university, both for their students and for uh, Miami students. Um, Daryl Baldwin is tasked in 2001 with creating the Miamia Project to kind of support all of this education. Um, What does he walk into? What does that look like in 2001?
2: So in in 2001, after relocating his entire family to the Oxford, Ohio area to be near Miami University's campus, um, Daryl literally walks into an office on the, the third floor of King Library and and there's there's nothing there at first.
0: Hinde, um hold up just a second. So you say he walks into an office on the third floor of King Library, but what did his office actually look like?
2: <laughs> yeah, funny you should ask. So <laughs> I, I have distinct memories of that office, which we we call a closet um, in our in our stories about his arrival on campus. So it was a very tiny room um, that it did have a window. Um, but basically had room for, for one desk and one chair, and he couldn't really even have guests come into it. Um, and so we always, we always would tease him that, you know, he has this great opportunity at, at Miami university, you know, working in a broom closet, <laughs> <And> <laughs> it, it at least physically did not look like the most auspicious beginnings.
1: <laughs> Didn't he actually say that it is a broom closet again? Now, today?
2: I I think it was for a while, but now, sadly, the office itself uh, doesn't exist anymore. In a later renovation, they tore that whole wing out. So all we have is our story of it as proof, and no one can say we're wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I think what this story proves is that when we say that Miami University had no idea what to do with him when he arrived on campus, it was uh, true physically as well as (laughs) metaphorically for the work (laughs) that he, he would be doing.
2: So from Daryl's point of view, as he, as he walked onto campus, as he walked um, into his closet um, in King Library, um, he saw himself, he describes recognizing a huge opportunity here uh, because he can work full-time on Miami Atuwenge and language revitalization. Um, he and Julie had lots of discussions leading up to his arrival on campus, um, but, and they had lots of ideas, but they had no playbook to follow. Um, they had no models for how a tribe could work within a university setting to, to, to work on language revitalization. Um, so, you know, we had a partner um, to to think through ideas, uh, but they they had to basically create something from nothing to develop um, this playbook. Um, but he describes being really inspired by, really empowered by the energy he felt. Um, this this opportunity, this really exciting opportunity. And while there was this you know three year deadline looming, they had three years to to do this work and prove for it to be extended, um he doesn't really uh, remember being worried about that, um, but more just he remembers the feeling of being inspired um, by this opportunity. So in two thousand and one, Daryl and his entire family relocate to the Oxford, Ohio area. Uh, nearby um, the Miami University campus in Oxford. And this is the first time in in his life where Daryl's been able, has the opportunity to work um, full-time in a job on language revitalization. And um, we asked him what what that was like to have that opportunity presented to him um, in, in
3: 2001. I guess what I really mean when I say created something from nothing is that there were no models that I could look to nationally for what we were trying to do here at Miami University. And that felt like I had nothing to draw on. It's not like I didn't have people and community and some experiences to draw on. It's just that whatever it was I was baking or we were baking collectively, there was no recipe for it. I I didn't know what we were creating. We didn't know what we were creating.
2: So, you know, what we're hearing from Daryl there is just how there were, uh, you know, from our perspective as Miami people, that we didn't know of any models to follow um, when he arrived on campus. And so a lot of what, um, what he had to create and eventually other people who joined in into, into his effort here in the Miami project, and what eventually became the Miami Center, um, we had to, to chart our own path and grow according to the needs uh, of our community. Um, in a way that we can make work inside the context of uh, Miami University, it's really it's really humbling to sit back for a moment with both of you and talk about this uh, amazing relationship and its roots. And every time every time we tell this story, I think about um, what might have been you know, the key moment or moments in developing this relationship. Um, and, and nearly every time we tell this story or we talk about it, um, I have a, a different answer to that question. Um, so, you know, what do you both think today after, after talking about it again? What do you think are, are uh, definitive moments for the Miami tribe, Miami University relationship?
0: For me personally, reflecting back on the story, I think a lot about the creation of the relationship and Forest Old's coming to Miami University. And the story sometimes seems a little bit serendipitous. Um, but I think that if you actually reflect back on the history of what's happening both at Miami University and within the Miami tribe, that things were culminating to a point at which it was possible for the formation of a relationship. And I also think that knowing what we know today, that there are really no other relationships like this one at any other universities in North America, that the creation of this relationship is is so unique, is so meaningful um, and so much work has happened in the almost 50 years since it was created, that to me, that's the most important key moment um, is the arrival of Chief Olds and in the, in the start of this relationship in 1972.
1: Um, you know, obviously, none of these opportunities would be um, available to us with, without that initial visit. Um, but for me, it's the, the shift to educating uh, Miami students. Um, so without um, Chief Leonard, Murtis Powell, um, and the first students that arrived on campus, um, kind of opening the door, um, establishing the need for this program, um, I probably would not have come to Miami University. And I would not be working on my second degree from Miami University. I wouldn't be working at Miami University. Um, I'd probably be at some big school in Indiana, in all honesty. Um, so that that transition to education was really definitive for me.
2: Yeah. yeah I think for, for me uh, as an educator, obviously, I, I connect to the same, the same significant moment. Um, and it's it's that transition that leads us towards eventually creating the Miami Heritage Course series for our students who come here and creating circumstances by which we can bring everyone together on a regular basis on campus, um, which is something we'll talk about in more detail in, in later episodes, but it's that shift to education that that makes that makes that uh, doorway possible for us to to follow that path.
1: So as we wrap up the episode, we want to. Challenge all of you, all of our listeners, um, to really think about the information that we've shared, the history of the relationship between the Miami Tribe and Miami University, um, as well as the brief history <laughs> that we gave you for the the Miami Tribe, and reflect on those key moments, those moments of development, um, because in some way. Um, Odds are this trickle effect impacts you somehow. It could be big. It could be little. So we want you to challenge. We want to challenge you to think about how does this relationship and um, in, in this revitalization work impact you today? Um, in episode two, we're going to explore a little bit more in depth history of the Miami Tribe. George um, gave a super duper brief history between 1846 and 1972, but some pretty major events happened. So in episode two, we're going to come back and explore that a little bit more.
0: Thank you for listening to this first episode of Ne Pondinge stories from Yamiya revitalization. Ne alaka <laughs> We would like to say Misha Maywe, give a big thanks to the many people who have made this podcast possible. Jonathan Fox is working as our producer. And then we also need to say Maywe to Daryl Baldwin, Julie Olds, and Mertis Powell, all of whom you heard about in this episode as well as Mayway to Miami University Communications and Marketing for allowing us to use the clip of Daryl at the 2017 commencement, as well as the Miami University Communications Department um, for allowing us to have access to their reporting students.